So welcome everybody. I am really delighted to have you here. It's unlikely that any of us will ever have a time where we can make a bigger difference in racial justice and change, at least in the United States and perhaps in other parts of the country than we can right now. Things are so disrupted, things are so unfrozen, and this is the moment if there ever was one in our entire lifetimes. So we are gonna take a tiny dive, just dip our toes into this subject. My name is Jenny Rudolph. I'm the executive director of the Center for Medical Simulation and an organizational behavior scholar. My faculty appointments at Harvard Medical School, for those of you I haven't had a chance to meet before, and I'm a member of the Department of Anesthesia, Critical Care, and Pain Medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital. I'm really excited to have with us today Tamara Buckley, whose work I've been reading for more than 10 years. She's an associate professor at Hunter College uh, in New York City, a licensed psychologist, and she focuses on racial, racial justice. Uh, she seeks to build knowledge about how social disparities and oppressive structures interact to produce disparities in health, education, and the workplace. So I'm really excited to have your voice here today, Tamara, because I've found your ideas very provocative and have really helped my thinking over the years. Great to be here. Thank you. Uh, Erica Foldy is on faculty at the NYU Wagner School of um, Public Service. And Erica's work has also influenced me very much over the last many years. Erica and I have actually known each other for close to 25 years. We were doctoral students together and she's been uh, kicking my butt in a variety of ways ever, ever since then, trying to get me to think more clearly. And I'm really glad that she's here. And Erica's also an organizational behavior scholar. Erica, welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me. And then April Bell is the director of in-situ simulation at the Office of Interprofessional Simulation or Innovative Clinical Practice at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. And April's trained as a critical care nurse but she also helps develop faculty across UAB to have difficult conversations, debriefings, feedback, and so on. So she brings a lot of mojo to this conversation today. Welcome, April. Thank you. Um, so I'd like to just do a little bit to set the container today for our conversation using the metaphor of how we all work together today in cyberspace on a, on a topic that may be difficult for many of us. And what exactly is that topic? Let me start there. So we're hoping, as I said, we're just gonna dip our toe in a little bit, that by the end of this uh, conversation together, you'll have a sense of how to create and sustain brave spaces for dialogue when the simulation or debriefing includes objectives regarding race or racism. And we'll unpack what we mean by brave spaces in the course of this conversation. We'd also like to help you a little bit with some opening lines for how the heck do we even talk about this? Racism is usually the ultimate undiscussable. Most of us don't like to go there at all. And I'm so grateful to have the uh, subject matter experts with us today, Erica Foldy and Tamara Buckley, to help us think about how do we even wade in here. So what are we gonna do? How are we gonna work together? What do I mean by a learning container for this webinar today? So one thing is we're gonna hold high standards for our dialogue around racism. 
So generally, we all try to shy away from it. Hopefully, we won't have to discuss it. Maybe this will just go away if I ignore it. Today, we're going to try something different. We're going to try to really tackle it and talk about it in a skillful way. However, we're likely to make mistakes. And first and foremost, me. I have a lot that I'm learning about this subject. And um, I'm here with people who know a lot more about it than I do. So we have to have high regard for each other's efforts while still holding ourselves to high standards to do the right thing and get better at talking about race and racism. So Erica and Tamara, who do a lot of work on this, have told me that I should brief you all and say to expect some discomfort today. Maybe these subjects are ones that you're not that comfortable with. I know I'm not. Um, I know I'm learning a lot. And the other thing they coached me on was to say that we may not get closure. There's probably not one right way to do something. So like in a debriefing, I don't know about you, I like to tie it up all nice and neat and give it to the learners. We're not gonna get there. There's gonna be gray space. There's gonna be unanswered questions. There may even be disagreement. The technicalities of this uh, space are we are on a video cast with text questions. So folks, we have a Q&A space for all of you who are joining us from around the world. Please feel free to text in your questions as we go. We're gonna have two times where we pause and uh, discuss your questions with Tamara, April, and Erica, and Ann Mullen will be uh, helping us do that. Uh, Laura Gay-Majeris is our wonderful tech host, and I will be relying on her to keep our whole uh, you know, sort of cyberspace uh, space together for us. And thank you for acting as a bridge and a text monitor. And I know you're going to be doing some super speedy qualitative analysis to figure out the themes of the questions and bring them to us. So let me just Sounds pause good. there. Happy for, to help. Thanks, Anne. Pause and just see if I've forgotten anything, uh, Tamara, April, Erica. Okay, I'm going to take your silences. I'm good to go. So where we'd like to go first is talking a little bit with you about simulation and briefing and debriefing. So I've spent the last 15 years thinking a lot about how do we create a psychologically safe environment for simulation. And when we were crafting this webinar, I chatted with Erica and Tamara and they were like, yeah, that's okay, Jenny, as far as it goes, but it doesn't go far enough. So I am going to toss the ball to my good colleague, Erica, and say, Erica, you know, I always thought psychological safety good, good enough, a holy grail perhaps even, but um, I've gotten the impression from you that that's not necessarily going to cut it when we're talking about race and racism. So can you help us out? I certainly can. Um, before we go to the next slide, let's stay on the, uh, the earlier slide just very quickly. It's a pleasure to bring, to draw on some of the work that Tamara and I have done in the past and to bring it to a whole new context. So um, I think I speak for both of us to say that we're both really pleased about that. Um, I should also say that while I'm gonna draw on work that both Tamara and I have done, Tamara may end up disagreeing with some of the things that I say and I'm sure she'll be very happy to um, let me know that um, as, we, as we move forward. And yes, I am going to suggest some tweaks to what I know have been very influential guidelines from what I hear um, that CMS has <clears throat> distributed, disseminated around the world. I think when you bring race into the equation, um, it might, they, they might 
take a little tweaking. The only other thing I'll say before we dive in is that I'm deliberately being a little uh, provocative here and um, very, very interested in the reactions of um, our panel and also of the audience. So now go ahead to the, uh, to the next slide, Jenny. <clears throat> so creating a psychologically safe container is essential to learning. That has been you know, uh, an absolute fundamental that um, I know um, has been part of the CMS approach for many years. We want to tweak that in two ways. The first one is the container must be identity safe as well as psychologically safe, and I'll explain what that means in a moment. And we're going to encourage you to think of brave spaces and not just safe spaces. So let's go ahead to the, to the next slide. So the idea behind identity safety is that individuals in a group are not necessarily at equal risk for feeling safe or unsafe. Our social identities, we're focusing on race here today, but it could be gender identity, could be religion, lots of other things, um, often can make people feel less safe than others who might be in the dominant group. So identity safety is the sense that I am not at risk because of my social identity, my race, religion, et cetera. Go ahead, Jenny. In a white dominated society, in a white dominated healthcare system, and likely, not necessarily, but likely a white dominated clinical environment, people of color are less likely to feel psychologically safe unless special attention is given to identity safety and not just psychological safety. You can go ahead. So to unpack that a little bit more, let's talk a little bit about brave spaces versus safe spaces. Brave spaces require us to be, we're gonna be at the edge of our practice. We're gonna be working at the edge or maybe even slightly beyond our comfort zone. You can go ahead. Talking about race is never gonna be fully safe. Race brings up deep emotions, rage, guilt, shame, sorrow. And those emotions can make people feel very uncomfortable, even scared. I mean, I might even say terrified sometimes. If people feel that way, it doesn't necessarily mean that something is going wrong. We've avoided these conversations for, you could say, centuries. So even though people are scared of them, we need to have them anyway. Now, it's also really important to make the case to, to clarify that white people and people of color often feel scared for different reasons. White people, and I count myself among this group, um, are more likely to feel scared because we may say something racist, we may be perceived as saying something racist, we may hurt people we care about, and we may be called out. People of color are more likely to feel scared because they may be the target of racist speech or microaggressions. I've learned over the years that cross-race conversations about race can be deeply traumatizing to people of color. The fears that white people hold and the fears that people of color hold are not equivalent. And by that, I mean, it is more important to attend to the fears of people of color. Ideally, as a facilitator, you're able to, to raise the safety of everybody in the room. But sometimes you have to make a choice. We can talk about what those sometimes might be. Sometimes you have to make a choice. And if you do, my encouragement is to start with attending to the safety of people of color in the room. I'm going to stop there and time to open it up. So um, Tamara, 
and April. Um, as someone who facilitates a lot of conversations, formal conversations in debriefings, meetings, etc., I take pride, and I think many people on this webinar do, of having civil discourse conversations that are actually going somewhere. And I think at this particular moment in our global history, we're all sort of pinioned in this dilemma of we recognize if we keep the lid on all these conversations, we're not gonna get better at them, we're not gonna go anywhere. But at the same time, I think we're all worried that we're gonna make things worse if we step into that brave space. And because we haven't solved the problem of identity safety. So you ladies have been thinking about this a lot. Help. <laughs> Tamara, do you wanna start us off? Did you say, I'm sorry. Tamara would yeah, you yeah. like to start us so off? So I guess, you know, I, I've been um, training graduate students to become counselor educators for about 20 years. And we talk a lot about this trepidation to, to talk about race or like, we're gonna make a mistake. So they're working in a counseling situation where in schools often, where race is right not only for the students, but within the school context. And there's so much worry and they, they worry even about labeling, um, that saying that, you know, their client is black. And I'm like, what's the concern? Actually, for black people talking about race, um, I mean, they, we often, I'm black biracial, um, we often move through the world thinking about race. So it's often on our minds. Also, being Black is a strength. It's something I feel good about. It's something that I want to be named. So I think that's one thing is sort of maybe flipping on its head the idea that I'm going to offend this person if I say something like, you know, racist or if I say something about their race. Actually having race be opened up in something that can be discussed, I think can be a relief for many Black people, especially in multiracial groups. So it sounds like with this idea of identity safety, paradoxically, keeping race undiscussable actually re might reduce identity safety, you're saying, Tamara, and if we can make it a bit more discussable, it may be a bit safer for us. Exactly, and there's actually some research that has shown that in an organizational context, that acting colorblind, Erica and I don't believe that colorblindness is really possible, mm -hmm. but even if it were, we don't believe it's something to um, strive for. That has been found to reduce trust and safety in some organizational contexts. So yes, exactly to your point. Mm -hmm. April, what's going through your mind as you listen to this conversation? So I agree with Tamara that colorblind, colorblindness to me is dismissive of who I am. I am black every day, can't wash <laughs> it off, can't take it off. It stays with me. It is part of who I am. And um, to dismiss that part of me is to dismiss a significant um a, a significant piece of my perspective my history my culture my life experiences and the diversity that i in thought 
that I can add to a group. Colorblindness to me is just reads dismissive. Mm. So thinking about our audience here who are health professions educators, maybe simulation educators, what I'm hearing here is that paradoxically, making race discussable, bringing up um, difference, not covering it over, not pretending it's not there, I'll put it in the positive, discussing it can actually increase identity safety and be a model of uh, broadening the brave space that we can each uh, take some action in. So what I'd like to do now is turn the conversation um, a little bit of a different direction and potentially turn the heat up a little bit more on all of us and talk about racism per se. So another area that I've been very passionate about is the idea of high regard for each other. And one of the ways that many of us in the simulation community have carried that out is through something called the basic assumption, which is we're gonna assume, even if you mess up in a simulation, even if you do great in a simulation, even if whatever, um, you are intelligent, capable, care about doing your best and want to improve. And that that's enough and that's really important. Mm -hmm. I ran this by Tamara and Erica who have been serving sort of as the subject experts as we try to get up to speed on this at the Center for Medical Simulation and, and connect their work to other health professions educators. And they were like, again, nicely, but eh, not quite going to cut it, Jenny. So Erica, help me out again, please. Sure. So we're tweaking this one too. And here, everyone's intelligent, capable, cares about doing their best, wants to improve, and for white people, is at least a little bit racist. So let's unpack that a little bit. Let's go to the next slide. First of all, let's talk about what racism is. It's generally understood that there are two kinds of racism. One is individual racism, and that's when individual, unindividuals' racial beliefs actually affect public interaction. They come out into the public sphere. So this includes racial slurs and racial violence, as we all know, but it also includes subtle digs, questions, innuendos that are sometimes known as microaggressions. There's another kind of racism, that's structural racism. This is when unfair policies, discriminatory practices of particular institutions, healthcare certainly, but criminal justice, the education system, et cetera, these policies and practices routinely produce racially inequitable outcomes for people of color and advantages for white people. We can go to the next slide. It is virtually impossible to grow up as a white person in a structurally racist society and not be at least a little bit racist. And that is absolutely as true for me as it is for, I would argue, virtually all other white people. Now, this can be really hard to hear. I'm sure many of you have spent your lives serving very diverse populations, people from very diverse backgrounds. I encourage you, rather than put up a defense, is to consider the possibility that you might be at least a little bit racist. Because what that does is it opens up the journey of becoming less racist. And that's actually the great news. The great news is that white people can learn how to be less racist. 
And to talk a little bit more about this, I want to draw on the work of Carol Dweck, who's a psychologist at Stanford. And her work has just been enormously influential in many, many different contexts. But she started years ago talking to elementary school kids. And she found that there were kids who said, either you're smart or you're not smart. You're dumb or you're not dumb. And those kids tended not to do as well in school. And then there were kids who said, if I work hard, I can get smarter. And those kids tended to do better in school. She called that a growth mindset. It's possible to grow. The other one she called a fixed mindset. People are fixed. They are the way they are. You can apply that same thinking to thinking about racism. We can all learn and grow and become less racist if you have a growth mindset. If you have a fixed mindset that says they're racist and they're not racist, and I am definitely in the not racist category, it's going to be impossible for you to learn and grow. So again, I'm going to leave it there, and uh, Jenny will take it away. Great. So uh, Tamara and April, one of the things I've thought a lot about um, as I tried to figure out what could I do after the um, events that happened with Mr. Floyd uh, in Minneapolis and, and Breonna Taylor and so many other uh, black Americans who were killed at the hands of police. And I just felt like my business as usual is just not gonna work anymore. I went back to work that you, Tamara and Erica had pointed my way many years ago that you, know, you can think of racism a bit on a continuum you know, there's like bigots, they're super aware of race and they talk about it a lot, you know, blacks are bad, whites are good, or this one's bad and this one's good. And then Tamara and Erica, you've problematized a little bit for us this idea of colorblindness, that everybody's the same underneath the skin and no differences there. Um, and, and April, you just shared so poignantly, you know, how you're black every day and acting like there isn't difference doesn't actually help you. So I'm thinking there's something along that continuum or elasticity of how do we grow and under, how, do, how should we change our brains? So Tamara, your thoughts on that? Well, I think um, I would agree with Erica that um, individual racism is on a continuum. And um, I think what is first most important is learning, is growing. So I know a lot of people are reading I know lots of, you know, you know, authors in the area of anti-racism are, their books are sold out right now. So I think that's a huge, important way. It's also private. So you're not necessarily showing or airing out your areas of um, sort of where you feel vulnerable in public. So I think that's a good thing. Uh, critically, I think, is to have allies, white allies that you can talk to about your journey as you move on your journey to becoming anti-racist. Um, and I'm doing the same thing. One of the things that Erica and I, um, in preparing for this talk, uh, the podcast talked about was that, you know, can everybody be racist? And I pushed back on that because indeed, um, everybody can, has biases and stereotypes. I certainly do. But they become problematic when they're aligned with power. And so I pushed back on saying everybody can be racist, but there are many different, different um, definitions for individual racism. But I think the learning, 
the reading, the growing, the catching your biases, and the develop, forming alliances with other white people and not relying on people of color are three critical things. Mm. April, um, your thoughts? I know you've, you really committed in your career to helping colleagues grow and learn using simulation, but this is a new area for all of us. What are your thoughts about um, expanding our thinking, changing our thinking, developing, shaping our frames around race and racism? So I believe that we all have biases. Doesn't matter what race you are or what creed you belong to. We all have biases. The good thing about these biases is that they're malleable and they can be unlearned. So in exercises to work to unlearn biases, um, specifically for this conversation, racial biases, we all, black and white, have to interrogate things that surprise us. When you have a mental moment and you're like, huh, I wonder why do I think this way about this particular person? Um, and then after you're surprised, think really deeply about what is it that I'm really experiencing? And then think about a time that maybe you experienced the same type of person in a more positive manner. And that is the way you work to unlearn the biases, to, to acknowledge, recognize and acknowledge them. And then you also have to be aware that some biases are hidden to ourselves. Mm -hmm. There are things that we don't know that others don't know about us. There are things that we know about ourselves that we show to the world. And there's things we know about ourselves that we don't show to the world. So there's complexity in bias. So there's race plus, and it is unique to each person. Right, and, and April, not sure this is what you're referring to, but there's really interesting research on implicit bias, bias I'm not aware of, that shapes my actions even as I'm unaware of it. Um, so Ann Mullen, I'd like to uh, ask you to come on and join us here and um, help us connect with our broader audience and broader audience, feel free to send in uh, your comments or questions. Uh, we have uh, some time now. We'd love to be in dialogue with you. So Anne, how are we looking? What's on, what's on our audience's mind? So one practical question is about how we usually include psychological safety in our pre-briefing. How might we also add identity safety to that pre-briefing? Uh, Eric and Tamara, just a word there, sort of at the beginning of the day, or perhaps the beginning of a in situ brief session, we try to build some learning agreements, which I know you both do in your teaching and learning before the learners get started. Uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I'll throw something out and I'd love to hear what Tamara thinks. It's I think it would be possible to say um, in the pre-briefing, we know that not everybody um, is equally able in a given situation to feel the same level of psychological safety. You know, we have different identities, um, particularly when our identity is not the dominant identity, it's not the norm, not considered the norm. Um, we may be less likely to feel um, safe in a given situation. Um, and just make that, you know, open and, you know, 
clarify that for the group and then potentially have a conversation about that. I'm not sure exactly how the context works, but just acknowledging that not everybody is going to feel equally psychologically safe because of a context, because of what's going on in the larger context, I think that would be an initial step. Fantastic. Other thoughts, Tamara? Um, I think, uh, I think the way that I enhance identity safety is just talking about race and class. So it's discussable right from the beginning. I just bring it into my work. It's just a part of my syllabi. It's a part of how I interact with students. It's a part of how I share my own experiences. So I'm making it discussable right, right away. Thank you, that's great. Um, Anne, what else are we hearing? So one, one other question was related to kind of the blurry line between implicit bias and conscious bias. It sounds like the, uh, the poss there's a possibility that we might have some biases that we don't admit to or that we uh, hide behind. Yeah, so this gets, you know, complicated, just like um, April said. Um, so there are kind of different levels. I think most people are probably not aware of most of their biases. I mean, unfortunately, biases tend to be kind of automatic and implicit. We kind of jump to conclusions. We, you know, cross the street if we see a certain person coming towards us, we, we, we kind of can, can work kind of automatically. With a little bit of work, then there's some stuff that's like kind of just below the surface. And with a little bit of work, with reading, like Tamara suggested, going to workshops, talking with people, you can start to get at some of those. And um, they're, they're relatively available. Then there are deeper biases that um, can be very, very hard to, to pick up, and it's going to take a little more work. Um, implicit biases specifically refer to biases that are so hidden um, they really require, they're not going to appear on your average survey. Um, you need special tools to get at these implicit biases. What I would encourage, I would encourage people to start um, by just like Tamara said, doing some reading, starting to think about where they find themselves making some automatic conclusions, jumping, jumping to things. And um, it's possible to take the implicit association test, which actually allows you to look at whether or not you have implicit bias it's online. Uh, Google Harvard IAT, Implicit Association Test, and you'll find a number of different tests you can take related to race, gender, um, various other um, social identities. And um, I know there was one question that sort of accidentally jumped over into the answered bucket, uh, which I'm just going to pull out if that's okay with you, which is sure. Tamara and um, Erica, one person asks that they've learned from Kendi's work that black people, and I'll say black indigenous people of color, can be a little bit racist too. What are your thoughts on that tweak being universally applicable regardless of color? I'm gonna let Tamara take that one. Well, it's, uh, I, that, that was part of the conversation Erica and I were having. And in fact, when I first opened his book, I closed it after I read that I closed the book and put it away and said he doesn't know what he's talking about and then I read some of them I, I didn't say he doesn't know what he's talking about but I was like huh 
So, you know, I think that there are different definitions of racism. Um, and in some ways, I think, I, I actually don't always get into discussion of, are you racist or are you not? I don't know if that's where the work needs to be and who can be racist and who can't. I think the work and the focal point should be more around understanding how the structural um, components of racism, like our institutions, how they interact with our individual behaviors and attitudes and sort of support and create um, racism. So I'm more concerned with um, that interaction, the interaction between the structural and the individual, and really attacking the structure, understanding the structural, understanding the history and how that's informed how we've gotten to where we've gotten, then labeling who can be racist or who can't. So that, that's really honestly how I feel. Well, I think anybody can be racist. I'm really curious to know, uh, Tamara, what you meant earlier when you were talking about power and racism. I'm really curious to know just a little bit more about what the, what the yeah. relationship is there. Well, that was my um, mentor, Dr. Robert Carter. Um, when I took his racism class in graduate school, I learned that racism included three levels, individual, cultural, so the idea that most greeting cards were white, band-aids were for white skin, what, you know, all these signals and institutional and organizational. So that's how I learned about it. And I learned that if you are not aligned with the power structure, and that's white people in the United States, then you, then you can't be racist because you can do individual acts, but you're not aligned with power. So you're not, the policies and practices are not designed for your success. Mm. And that's part of why I don't label black people as racist because individual acts of racism are matter but Derek Chauvin wouldn't have thought he could have put his knee on the neck of Mr. Floyd unless he knew he had structural support and sanction and, it, and he got caught right but these things are happening these individual acts of racism are supported by these broader structures. And so that's why I don't, I don't think about, that's how I think about power. That it's the alignment of the individual and the structural that really creates um, the violence. Um, I'd like to um, build on what you're saying there in terms of the intersection of structural and and uh, individual action in a, in a perhaps paradoxical way. Um, we, we have a really interesting question from Kate Nicholas in Vermont who worries that putting the black, about putting a black person on the hot seat. So in simulation, we often have one person who's like sort of more in charge. And I was so struck when I read a study a number of years ago about uh, black associates in high powered law firms who didn't get the spicy feedback that their white associate colleagues did and therefore were shocked and surprised when they didn't make partner because they were like, oh, good, 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 good. And so I think Kate is bringing up something very tough for us white people, perhaps others, I'll just speak for myself, which is 
you want to hold high standards and high regard, but you're worried that you're going to look like a racist if you somehow are seen to be unfairly holding high standards, but then that makes you actually racist because you don't hold them to the standards and you don't help them develop. Again, help. Your thoughts, Tamara or Erica? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it, it's a huge problem. And it's a huge disadvantage for black or people of color's advancement. Um, and it really, the burden lies with the white person to get the training, to get up to speed, to share honestly um, that, that feedback. But I guess I was curious, was she talking about, or the person who, was, was that about the simulation setting or the context in general? And your interpretation, just because we can't hear from Kate herself. I took it to mean in the simulation, but I could be wrong about that. So again, yeah. this is so rich, but I'm going to go on because we uh, promised in our objectives that we were going to talk a little bit about opening lines. And I know um, we're just dipping our toe. I just want to say that again to everybody. Um, we have so many other wonderful questions from um, many of you, and uh, maybe we'll be able to type some answers later. So I'd like to turn the ship of this conversation a little bit to just some imagining us being in a debriefing. And April Bell has kindly agreed to sort of help us think about this. So April, you know, just as we were saying, it's kind of hard to um, call people out or hold people to account or hold high standards around conversations that deal with race and racism because we're all a little afraid of it. We want to do a good job. Um, and so you and I chatted a bit about potentially using a tool that a lot of us have used before. How would we use advocacy inquiry or preview advocacy inquiry as an opening line for broaching race. And I Absolutely. wonder if you could talk a little bit about an example. Absolutely. So before I get to the example, Jenny, do you mind if I just take us back two steps into design? Please. And then into um, debriefing. So we know as simulationists that we design our simulations around objectives that this pre-briefing, the simulation experience, and the debriefing experience are all connected. And I encourage you that if you choose to design simulations surrounding DEI or diversity, equity, inclusion type spicy topics, that if you are not a content expert or subject matter expert yourself, that you invite the subject matter expert and the, or the um, content expert to the table as you design the simulation. Um, this will help design, this will help create a simulation that has thoughtful um, pieces to it, so to speak, and avoid unnecessary assumptions. So let's say you've done your due diligence and your good hard work and you have designed you a simulation and your simulation is focused on the management of a patient with sickle cell disease. So if you're not familiar, sickle cell disease can be quite painful and it is a disease that is typically in patients of African descent. So I would- yeah, April, if I could just rudely jump in for a sec. I just wanna uh, invite Ann Mullen to step into our role here as the participant. So we're gonna do a simulated debriefing here, <laughs> uh, folks. Um, and April's going to be a, in a little bit of a dialogue with Ann Mullen, who's just taken care of this patient with 
sickle cell disease and trying to help the patient manage her pain. Absolutely. So back to you, uh, April. Okay. So Anne, I'd like to do a quick preview. I want to broach a topic that may be uncomfortable for many of us. Let's discuss the role of bias, specifically racial bias in the treatment plan. I observed the team conservatively treat the pain of this sickle cell patient with one milligram of morphine every four hours for a pain score of 10 out of 10 with a history of pain related to this condition. I'm concerned that under treating this patient's pain may be related to racial bias, conscious or unconscious, because sickle cell occurs primarily in patients of African descent. What were your thoughts at the time? Oh, no, that wasn't on my mind at all. I was just worried about giving an overdose of the medication. I was trying to be cautious. Okay. I'm, I'm hearing you say that racial bias did not have a role in the treatment of this patient. I want to hang on to this topic a bit longer and explore a bit more. Um, oftentimes, we may experience some biases, whether they are known to us or not. And I just want to caution you as you go through your training to make sure that if something surprises you, something that pops up, a bias perhaps, that you acknowledge the bias, pay attention to things that surprise you, interrogate their origin, why do I feel this way about this particular thing? And then through exposure, try to unlearn those biases. We all have biases, they are malleable and they can be unlearned. And our patients can benefit when we don't use these biases or, or if these biases don't impact our behaviors with our patients in a negative way. Hmm. Well, I, at the time, I thought it was the right dose, but, you know, you've given me a lot to think about, April. I'll have to ponder on this a bit. All right. Thank you very much. This simulated debriefing is over. Really appreciate your waiting in there with us, uh, guiding us there, April. And thank you, Anne. Um, Tamara and um, Erica, you're listening to this, and, and April Bell's obviously a highly skilled debriefer. Uh, you know, many of us mortals, um, uh, even if we're skilled debriefers, quake a bit trying to go and get into this topic area. Wondering what you were hearing there, any um, either reactions or guidance or uh, we have, you know, questions about how can people who are debriefers who are debriefers uh, who are white or debriefers of color can be allies to that learning in the process. Any reactions? What's on your mind hearing that? I have a quick reaction, um, and then I'd love to hear um, what Tam has to say. So sometimes people try to shut down the conversation because they'll say, how can we know? You, how can uh, we you know, know if they're racist? Yeah, how can we know if, I, you know, what happened there? Um, or, you know, um, we'll never know. If I am biased, it's deep inside. I, you know, it certainly doesn't seem like that, that way to me. Or someone could create another scenario we could create another scenario where there are multiple reasons why something might have happened. And so people try to shut it down and say, we'll never know. And my response, and I think this is important for debriefers, is to say, you're right. I mean, given the situation, we may never know, but we learn a lot by having the conversation anyway. Yes. 
Pam, reactions? I think I would just add, I completely agree uh, with Erica around that. And I would just add that proving, um, I think for people of color having to prove what they felt or observed or wonder about is something we want to be, that is important to be careful about. Because I think um, some of what makes spaces hard to feel safe for black people and people of color is that they feel like there's a lot of disbelieving. Like, oh, it can't be that bad. Or, oh, mm. we can't, no, you can't really be followed around all the stores. No, I am, right? And so I think, um, so I, I think the inquiry piece, uh, this is not exactly my language, but the holding out the possibility is even more important in the area of racism, I would say. A, so that's one comment I would make. I think the other comment I would make is um, I, in the advocacy, you know, a lot of this work is highly emotional. The impact of racism, feeling racism, or even considering racism is very emotional. So I would encourage also being attuned to your body, like what's happening in your body? What are, are you sweating? Do you feel anxious? Because those are often signals that something's off. You know, you use the word surprise, April, and like if you if you feel surprised by something or if you just are feeling, you know, anxious or something different, I think that could be something good to tune into. And the emotional piece is very alive and work around racism. So I would want to, I would open that up too, as well as just the cognitive thinking piece. Thank you. These are such uh, excellent thoughts. And um, as we turn back to questions from our participants and, and Ann Mullen, you're going to help us with that. You know, just, I want to remind us that this is the moment. If there were ever a moment in our entire lives where we can try to, you know, cautiously, even fearfully, whatever, get into these brave spaces, this is the moment. So Ann Mullen, uh, we have a lot of questions from people bravely wading into these waters. Um, would you care to share a couple with our, with our guests, please? Sure, I've, I see a theme emerging around how to be respectful by including black people, people of color, indigenous people in our planning process without overburdening them, putting the burden on them to help us to learn more about the problem. So um, how do we both include people and not make them responsible for doing all of our work for us in learning. Pam, Murad, do you care to uh, comment on that? I think the fact that, that, that people are even thinking about that is a really important step. Um, I do work with organizations around this and it's, it's actually happening right now, right? In the middle of all of this, uh, BIPOC people who are Black, Indigenous, from different groups are being called upon to do all this work. And it's finding that balancing act between how can we collaborate with you and still do our own work. Mm. And that was why in the beginning I talked about the importance of reading, the importance of finding other white people who can be allies. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a balance in my opinion. But just being mindful of it is a critical first step. I'd like to just... Uh, 
just asking. Yeah. Like, I want to involve you. How much do you want to be involved? And how, you know, so airing that, that question as well. Sorry to cut you off, Jenny. No, 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 uh, please. I'm so happy. Um, and um, uh, the, the flip side of that, uh, in a certain sense, that I see in the questions uh, that I wanted to go back to April with, if, if you don't mind, is uh, Christina Chong's question, which is, if Anne's character in the debriefing said, oh yeah, I just, I, I did, that wasn't even on my mind. Race wasn't even on my mind. I just, I just didn't want to give her an overdose. Um, and Christina's like, hmm, maybe you want to just come back at that with a little bit and say, hey, uh, would it be fair to say that you regularly prescribe one milligram of morphine uh, for 10 out of 10 pain only every four hours? Um, so that seems legit to me. Uh, April, your thoughts? Uh, I, I completely agree. There's, I think there's several moves that you could make uh, once your participants respond. And yes, you could dig deeper into, is this how you normally treat your patients? And sticking, you, you can investigate that as well. And if your goal here is to dig into race racism and and bias you also have to make a choice right am i just going to deal with this one milligram or am i going to deal with um the racial bias that may be present that would never come out if we didn't have this conversation so you kind of have to choose your move depending on your time and if you have plenty of time you could dig into all of it yeah um uh, April, if I could, just sticking with this for, for one more moment, uh, your comment makes me think that simulation, as it has in many contexts, gives us a microscopically well-focused lens mm -hmm. that may let us get at implicit bias. I mean, the Christina Chung's question, if gently uh, diplomatically turned back to the learner, mm -hmm. could potentially make them think, yeah, hmm, you know, if it was another, you know, 50-something white lady like me who said she had a 10 out of 10 pain, hmm, maybe I wouldn't have given her one milligram every four hours. Uh, hmm, I hadn't thought of that. Um, right. Have you done anything like that, April, or what are your thoughts on kind of using our simulations as that lens to open up some true dialogue around implicit bias or, or any bias? Yes, so mostly it happens, in, in my experience, this tends to happen outside of the bigger debriefing. Because getting to this piece usually is a designed objective that needs careful planning and thought. Um, and resources to support it, resources to give to your participants and learners and to share and ways to, to navigate this bias within themselves because debriefing is a reflective process. So there's two things happening here. There's the care of, there's a facilitator trying to manage what happened in the sim, but there's also the facilitator trying to manage the self-reflection of these learners. And remember in the beginning, 
there may not be closure in this one debriefing, but our hope is that the simulation cycle continues, that someone leaves, the next time they take care of a patient like this, they'll think about this simulation and this debriefing, and maybe they'll do something different, differently. That is the hope that happens in the simulation cycle when we open some of these frames. Um, I don't know if that is helping the conversation, Jenny, but please let me know if I'm on the right I love path. that you're taking that longer view. Ann Mullen, let me come back to you for a, a suggestion of our last question to address. There were so many questions and I know we're not gonna get to them all. One general question um, that I gathered from several was, are there any resources that you're aware of? So examples of scenarios or toolkits or um, other things that people might use to help them in their scenario design? Well, I, I, I'm not sure if that was the question from Kelly Bryant, but Kelly, I think this is a great opportunity to have another fantastic conference that you're so good at. And uh, you're right there in New York with Erica and Tamara, and you know maybe we need to do a special issue of simulation in healthcare. You know, there's all kinds of opportunities here. So um, no good question goes unpunished. So thank you for bringing that up and, and uh, you know, count me in and trying to find some, some solutions there. Um, Anne, how about another, how about another one? Uh, and Kelly, sorry, not to my knowledge. If anybody does know a uh, repository of resources, let's please try to text it to me, email it to me, and we'll get it out to this group. So um, Grace Ng brought up a, a thoughtful question about the balance between including a patient's racial background in the scenario design, whether that might inadvertently introduce bias. Ooh. Thoughts? So, you know, do all, you know, medical problems who have a patient who has a race, race identified, would that promote bias? So I have a thought on this. Great. Uh, my thought on this is whether or not you mention the patient's race, if the participant or learner is, has a bias, um, it's okay to put them in that space because that's what's gonna happen when they get in clinical practice, right? So get to clinical practice and someone's gonna give them a report, you're gonna take care of a 56 year old black female, or you're going to take care of a 75 year old white male. There's to me nothing wrong with sharing the patient's race in the simulation and, and allowing the simulation to be the safe space if those biases do come out to dig deeper into those, to help that participant lead the simulation, maybe not having a, such a dangerous frame associated with bias, something that can be shifted in the debriefing, if that makes sense. That's a real like short way to get to a long answer. Thank you, April. So I'm going to move us along to just sharing some other opportunities to learn a little bit more about race and racism that we have coming up. Um, and uh, Erica Boldy from New York University Wagner uh, School of Public Service, Tamara Buckley from Hunter College School of Education and, and Counseling Psych. Thank you so much for being here. And April Bell, University of Alabama, Birmingham Office of uh, Interprofessional um, simulation. Thank you so much to all three of you for really raising the level of dialogue, I think, uh, in this, in our field as we try to get, get going on this. Thank you so much. Sure. So uh, for those of you who, um, oh, I should have put that up. 
Um, for those of you who'd like to come back for a little bit more, uh, next week we have Kelly Messervia Collins and Kendra Walt from Thunder Bay, Canada, who have been doing some really great work on simulation around caring for indigenous uh, patients in Canada. And so you hope you'll come back and Ann Mullen will be hosting that uh, with them. Um, as I said, you know, we think this is the moment of our lifetimes, those of us who are alive now to make change because COVID has disrupted everything. The conversation about racial justice is different. And so we're trying to be part of that dialogue. Um, one of the things we're doing to try to address changes uh, in the life of COVID is um, my wonderful colleague, Mary Fay, has developed a fantastic course for health professions, educators, and simulationists who have to teach online. Feel free to join us for that uh, later this month. Um, we've completely revamped our flagship uh, healthcare simulation course to allow all of you to reinvent yourselves. So we're thinking about how do you position simulation in a time of scarce resources to solve critical problems for your organizations, whether they're quality and safety, racial justice, staff wellness, whatever it might be. And we invite you, oh, I, th I think I left off one thing. And then uh, Janice Palaganis has been leading a wonderful course on bringing all of our collective mojo on debriefing from the simulation community into feedback conversations. So we had this course uh, in May. We had a number of program directors and chiefs and managers and clinicians and clinician educators who are all working together across the world in a wonderful community of practice to build their feedback conversation. So please consider joining us for that course uh, starting and uh, running for six weeks in September. If you liked what we talked about today, please uh, join us uh, for further partnering, consulting. We're here to help you. We, we think hard about all these issues and we'd love to be at your side solving problems that, that you have to deal with. So with that, I'd just like to thank my marvelous colleagues who've been here with us for the whole day, Erica, Tamara, April, and thank all of you who were online and joined us. Um, thank you so much for putting in your questions, sticking with us and thinking hard. And if we didn't answer your question, please feel free to email me um, and we will, I'll get one of these wonderful people to make sure we have a thoughtful answer for you. Thanks everybody. <laughs>